0: Hi there. This is City Book and Company, a chatty little podcast that dishes and dotes on the upstarts, icons, dreamers, and doers of Houston, the most fascinating city in America. I'm Jeff Grimillon, the editor of Houston City Book Magazine and HoustonCityBook.com, and I'm your host. Welcome to City Book and Company. We're talking today in just a short while with Ernie Manouse, who is a multi-Emmy winning interviewer on Houston Public Media, celebrating his 25th year at Houston Public Media. Ernie's also a personal friend of mine. I've always loved being around him. He has funny things to say. He's a really cool guy. He's interviewed some of the most famous people in the world, and I cannot wait to interview the interviewer about the art of interviewing. I've been looking forward to this. My colleague at City Book Magazine, Patrick McGee, is going to help in that endeavor. He is my guest co-host today, and he's the creative director of the magazine. Hi, Patrick.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for doing this. You are a really interesting person in many, many ways, but one of the things that has always intrigued me about you, you're a young guy. You're very good at digital and tech forward things that we do at the magazine, But you have, despite being fairly young, you love magazines. You had an internship at GQ, as I recall, when you were a little younger. Yeah. And you've always been drawn to the printed page. That's very weird. What's wrong with you?
1: You know, I've always loved magazines and I've always loved the combination of great photography, design, and smart reporting. And when it all comes together, there's just, and it, you know, printed on a page, there's just no better way to consume media, in my opinion. I mean, it's just such a, dynamic thing. And in March of 2006, Tom Ford guest edited the Hollywood issue of Vanity Fair. And it's sort of an iconic cover with a nude Scarlett Johansson and a nude Keira Knightley and Tom Ford in this great suit.
0: I remember it well.
1: And it was like two inches thick, so glossy, so cool, so smart, so sexy. And I was like, this is what I want to do with my life. Like, there's just nothing cooler than this. And I still have the issue. And it's one of my, you know, prized possessions because it's, you know, sort of meaningful and it's kind of a revelation to me. And so, yeah, so I, you know, and so love working at a magazine and love doing it in the city of Houston because I, there's so much happening here. And
0: well, you're from Houston. So that's important to you.
1: Born and raised in Houston. I always say my two favorite things about Houston are the people and the food. And those two things aren't always immediately apparent to outsiders, but I feel like that's something city Book does so well. Is tell the stories of interesting people and you know the great food that's happening here, and then you know just all the cultural moments.
0: Well, we're lucky to have you at City Book and happy that you're joining us today. You know Ernie personally too. The three of us, and we'll ask him about this. We're guest judges for a Pride Idol a while back. Yes, I think that um, Ernie's kind of the Simon of the group. You're the Paula.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I'm not sure where that leaves me, but anyway, but, Uh but we have a great rapport with Ernie and he's going to be fun to talk to Thank you for doing that. And we will jump right into that interview in just a minute after a short break. So I noticed my electricity bill was getting out of hand. It was time to do that thing all we Houstonians have to do from time to time. You know what I mean? You have to go through the hassle of switching to a new provider to get a better deal And then over time, the prices creep up on you again after the contract period ends. And then you have to do the whole thing over again, all over again, sometime later. It's maddening. Thank goodness a friend told me about Real Simple Energy. This is a new company, Houston-based, started by two friendly local young professionals, Trent and Paul. They're both around 40. And what they do is find you the cheapest deals, the cheapest deals for you. They present you three options, one of which will always be green if that's important to you. You pick, and they handle the busy work. getting you switched over you will save a ton of cash most folks save around 500 bucks a year i actually think i'm going to save a little bit more than that and the best part when your contract ends and your prices start sneaking up on you they get more cheap options in front of you again and do the whole process again and take care of you getting switched over the whole nine yards nobody else does what they do you will never pay for electricity again never hassle with providers only deal with real simple Set it and forget it. Never worry about this stuff again and have peace of mind. Don't let the big providers take advantage of you anymore. Sign up and start saving today at realsimpleenergy.com. And if you use promo code CityBook, you'll get an additional 50 bucks off your first bill. Ernie Manouse, welcome to CityBook and Company. Thanks for doing this.
2: Well, thank you for having me.
0: I have been looking forward to having this conversation with you, first of all, because we're friends and we don't get to spend nearly enough time just gabbing and catching up. And so this will serve that purpose, too. So I'm looking forward to that. But also, you're a terrific interviewer and you've been doing this for a long time, won many awards for it. And uh, I thought it would be fun to interview the interviewer about interviewing. And so we're going to spend some time talking about that in a minute. But to start with, I wanted to ask you a bit about your origin story. Uh, Tell me. Where, <laughs> I saw like a comic book character. You well, know, in my mind, you sort of are. So, where did you come from? And how did, I believe it was New York, Chicago by way of New York or something like that. Where did you start out? How did you get into interviewing? And how did you wind up in Houston?
2: Born and raised in Binghamton, New York, upstate New York. Went to Loyola University in Chicago for college and life immediately after that. And then down here to Houston. That's the whole path. I went to, <laughs> I went to Loyola. My original career path was I wanted to direct music videos. I wanted to be a director, but the idea of spending a year or two on a project seemed insane to me. And I thought, well, music videos are only three or four minutes long. I could do those. That wouldn't take too long. So laziness has been a constant in my career path.
0: <laughs> and if you, if you can make Loyola, it, If you Chicago, can make it work for you, man, that's great.
2: Yeah, you know, I found something I can do well, and I've stuck with it. And uh, Loyola Chicago was the right choice for me, so I went there. And midway along the way, I had a friend in one of my classes, Gail Jersey, and we would always kind of cut up during class, and we were in a radio writing production class together. And the teacher said one day to another student, you know who you should get to host the show you guys are producing? Those two. And those two were Gail and me." So he said, well, do you guys want to come in and sit in for the show one week? We were like, sure, we'll do it. We had no idea what we were talking about. So we went in. They hadn't told the actual host that we were coming in that day. And suddenly we were there to host her show. So she kind of stormed out. She was not happy about that. Went home. And about midway through the show, she called the station manager and resigned and said that we were having more fun on the show than she had ever had so we could have her show. So suddenly we had a Sunday afternoon talk show broadcast throughout Chicago, and we did it for the next two years, took a break, and then came back for four more years. So hosted that show for six years.
0: So yeah. So you dis- that's how it began. You displaced a diva, and that was how it all started. That he was a you former that, Miss
2: Teen USA that, too. That
0: makes perfect sense. That's very poetic. I, I feel <laughs> oh, thank you.
2: I, I feel that. So <laughs> yeah, and then after the run of that show. I was looking to switch and go into it. Gail had decided she wasn't going to stay in showbiz, but uh, I wanted to do another radio show and was looking around for things. And a friend looked at my tape, listened to my tape, and said, you know what, you've been doing television. You've just been doing it on the radio. You should apply to TV stations. And I was like, all right, I'll try it. Sent out my stuff to about nine stations. They all responded favorably, but at the time, Houston PBS, Gave me a guarantee that nobody else would. It was a guaranteed two years on air, and I thought, well, if I'm going to shift medium, then I'm going to be on air. I don't want to move for six weeks and then be canceled. So I took Houston PBS, and that was 25 years ago. This coming May, it'll be. So I guess it worked.
1: Ernie, what were your first impressions of Houston when you when you moved here from Chicago? Had you been here before? Or?
2: I came down just to do an audition show one time, and. It was interesting because I was in Chicago, third largest city in the country. I grew up outside of New York City. So my idea of a metropolitan city area was much different than what Houston is like. And I expected this to just because Chicago is just a smaller version of New York. And so I expected Houston would just be a little bit smaller than New York City and the same kind of feel, and the same kind of architecture and the same kind of layout. So I was very surprised, but pleasantly so. Because I loved the sense of neighborhoods and community. And I lived in the Montrose at that point. And so it had a whole different feel than an inner city. And so I I found it surprising and fun. And initially, I used to go back to Chicago every couple of months. And then as the years progressed, it got shorter and longer and longer between going. And eventually, yeah, I get back every couple of years now. So
0: So I know you've been around Houston for a while because you called it the Montrose. Don't they still call it that? I don't. I don't know. I don't think so. I think they dropped the the. I yeah. think they dropped the the. <laughs> I've been here sixteen years and I never had the the. So you've <laughs> well, you, I've been here
2: twenty five. You were so. you were
0: grandfathered in.
2: Yeah, I, I can still say the the.
0: So what's the secret to a great interview? What happens? What's the magic? And by the way, before I ask that question, do you have a guesstimation of how many interviews you've conducted over your career?
2: We tried to figure it out once, and because of the radio show in Chicago and the different things that I've done in the shows here and the magazine format programs where you move through a lot of people. At one point we had counted it at 30,000 interviews, mm. but they're not all the most significant. Like when they look back on your career, this probably <laughs> won't be one of the more significant ones you've done either. So um,
0: the first yeah, paragraph of my obit, Ernie.
2: Yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> no, there's been a lot. I mean, I was doing radio before TV, and I've been here 25 years, so simply by the sheer number of years gets the numbers up. Well, first of all, assuming that I do good interviews, because different people have different tastes, and some people probably love what I do, and other people probably think it's very unconventional. So I'll say that to start. For me, what I look for in an interview, we did a series called Interviews for 15 years, and it was... Myself and a single guest, it was 30 minutes long or 26 minutes, and it was live to tape. So I didn't really meet the guests beforehand. I didn't do a pre interview. We sat down. I was seated usually when they came into the room, already mic'd up. They sat down in the chair. We rolled tapes. When the show was done, they got up and left. So really, what you saw on the show was my complete interaction with the guest. And when we'd sit in the editing room to look at the show back, Around four or five minutes into the show, you would see a shift in the way the guest was sitting. and that was our magic moment and that's what we always looked for. And to us, what that signified was the guest had stopped being interviewed and was in the conversation. They had kind of forgotten and that so that was the goal for me to get them to relax into that. And that's just from, I think the style in which I interview, which is a lot of listening. Sometimes we'll joke we have to cut a demo or something or put together. A best of real or something and they never have me in them because really in my interviews i'm not that omnipresent i give them time to talk and to think and to formulate an answer one thing i used to say to classes when i would teach this is when you ask somebody how are you the response you usually get is a knee-jerk reaction response that they give every time they're asked that question and if you then jump right on with your next question you're missing that moment where they've got to process what you actually said and then give you a fuller answer. So if I say to you, how are you? You say, fine. I say, where'd you go for lunch today? You tell me. If I said, how are you? And you said, fine. And I wait a beat or two, you're now processing the question and you may come back with, well, you know, my leg's hurting a little bit because yesterday I was doing this fit. And all of a sudden, I've got more story there. And you're starting to open up and share more. So my biggest thing is let the interview breathe and listen to what they're saying. Years ago, Jim Lair and I were talking about this very thing. We were talking about having your questions pre-prepared as opposed to just being in the moment of the interview. And the example he gave was you're talking to a congressman and you say to the congressman, you chartered a plane to fly to Cuba. Why? And he says, or you fly to Cuba carrying hay or something. And he says, well, we did that so we could hide the guns. And your next question is, what kind of hay was it? Because you're not listening to what they're actually saying. So if you're listening, you can pick up on things that if you're pre-prepared, you can't. And you fall into relying on your questions as opposed to just having a conversation.
0: Do you have any examples that come to mind of surprising things that emerge from an interview because you, you took that approach? I love the gun one. I hope it was true.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I think that was just Jim Lehrer's tale he told over and over again. Off the top of my head, none popped to mind. But because I conduct most of my interviews that way, it just kind of evolves into that. So I'm always looking for the, the nugget you drop when talking. And where can I go? Now, the weird other side of all of this is I am really, I think, really bad at making small talk in real life. Because when I'm with somebody, they're expecting me to ask probing, life-changing questions. Well, heck, I can heck say, yeah, you
0: you're earning a noose.
2: There's a weird line of what's acceptable behavior when you're in this false environment of an interview, right? As opposed to real life when you have to have a certain courtesy. We cross these <laughs> barriers that in real life, you would never do. But when you've done 30,000 of them, you kind of forget how to relate normally to people. And so I often kind of pull back or don't try and, you know. When you started
1: interviewing 27 years ago, it was on radio. And the idea of a podcast was not even thought of or a YouTube show was not around yet. And now you have your own podcast. You've had a YouTube show. With all this new media, does the way you interview and connect with people change do you have to navigate based on these new types of mediums or is having a conversation with somebody whether it's a traditional radio show or something somebody gets on their phone pretty much the same
2: i think the difference is what you have to pay attention to like doing the radio show now we do a live show five days a week the trick is i've got to hit all the posts that i didn't ever worry about by the posts, i mean i got to do a break at uh, 318.30, and I've got to make sure I'm out by 53 and a half so that my news guy can come on and get his time. So I'm worrying about those things, which I usually don't worry about. When we would take the TV interviews for interviews, I could go 26 minutes and I knew I had the whole time. So it could go anywhere. So it had a comfort to it that was easier flow. Doing a podcast without set breaks, same thing. As long as I know I have a period of time. For me, the problem is when you watch a sitcom, they're structured in such a way on television that they have a joke every so often, and they have to have some kind of a cliffhanger and a joke at the end of that segment before they go to commercial to make you want to come back. And I don't think of my conversations in that way. I think they evolve. They may meander a bit, but along the journey, you hear the stories, and that's what makes it interesting. So that's the biggest difference for me is trying to leave you hanging so that you'll want to come back after a break or something. Now, the other shift in interviewing is when I interview people on stage before a live audience or with a studio audience. In that case, you're there to also entertain while you're doing it. So you're thinking in terms of, did they laugh at that? Didn't they? Are they enjoying? Are they involved? Aren't they? So that takes a different set of paying attention to. I don't know that you get, for me, as deep an interview When it's got an audience there, because I may find something fascinating and want to follow that path. But if I get the feeling the audience isn't there with me, I may alter where I'm going. But if I'm recording with just the guest and I have unlimited time or a a set period of time, but enough that I can play with it however I wish, I'll go after these things. So, you know, it's kind of a trade off. But but then like I I do the show with Al Pacino and we've done it enough And I kind of know his audiences enough and I, I can go and do whatever I want in that because they're simply fascinated to hear him talk about anything. So, you know, it changes from moment to moment like that. You have to know what your goal is, what you're doing. You're hosting a gala, you talk one way and you present things in one way because you know how long you have the attention of your audience. It's things like that. Did that answer your question? It did. And I, I mean, just curious, you've just like been a part of
1: evolving media, especially all the evolution that's happened in the last, you know, the last 27 years. Are there, like, what are the biggest challenges as, as you develop new shows, you just have to sort of jump into the medium and, and figure it out and go from there?
2: I, I like the challenge of that. I am a planner to some degree, but I like being in the moment. And I think that's why it makes it easy for me not to have prepared questions. It's like every time I sit down with a guest, will it hook? Will it work? Will it happen? And so that adrenaline, that excitement, I think helps me in what I do. So like, for example, Town Square, the show we're currently doing, I had about three hours prep time before that show went on the air. They came into the station one morning and they came to my office and said, hey, listen, we need you to go on air at three o'clock today with a show about the coronavirus. Do you think you can do it? I'm like, sure. What kind of show do you want? (laughs) And they were like, we want to call in and uh, whatever you want to do, just, just come up with something. We got to fill time and we think it's a service we need to do. And that was the prep. So it evolved on air. It's still evolving each day, but that's, it was not a lot of thought behind it. I think if you know the tools to do it, you can do it more quickly. I often watch a lot of reality programming, but competition reality shows. And I think to myself, oh, my God, how can they come up with a design for a dress in 30 minutes and then know it's the right one and go out and do it? And then I thought to myself, well, if somebody told me you had an interview and I didn't know who it was until the moment I was about to do it, I could probably in a few minutes formulate enough to carry an interview because of my experience. And so I thought, yeah, that's the same thing they do. That's the same thing on design shows and all those competition shows. That's their toolbox they're working from. And so they can pull it together more quickly because we know the shortcuts and the tips and the way to do it.
0: With interest rates being as low as they are, like so many other Americans, I recently refinanced my home. I shopped around a lot of the big national mortgage companies and the big banks, and I thought I'd do myself the favor of checking out a local Houston-based company too. I was delighted when Envoy Mortgage not only found the best deal for me, It made it all so easy. Nice Houston folks held my hand through the entire process, most of which I was able to do from my house. It was convenient because you can automatically connect your bank statements, your tax records, and your income documentation right from your phone or your tablet or your laptop. You don't have to worry all the time about how it's going as the process goes along because you get updated on each step of the process and receive video guides and helpful articles along the way. And it's pretty darn fast. Envoy's loan origination and underwriting is all done under one roof, which means your loan moves quickly. Envoy can help you whether you're buying a new home or refinancing. They even have special programs for first-time home buyers and veterans. Envoy Mortgage wants you to love your mortgage experience. Check them out at EnvoyMortgage.com and tell them Jeff from City Book sent you. And now back to our show. I want to ask you in just a, a minute a little bit more about COVID and how that's changed your life and changed your work. But you mentioned Al Pacino and I can't not go back to Al Pacino. What are you doing with Al Pacino? And what the hell? I mean, Al Pacino.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, in full disclosure, we haven't done our show in a a while now because the world has changed around us. But what had happened was uh, Society for the Performing Arts had brought Al Pacino to town to do a a live stage show for the audience as a fundraiser for SPA. And it was only... I. I think the fourth show he had done in this Pacino one night only that's, I think now called an evening with Al Pacino, but it's it's the same show. And they quickly in the run of it decided he shouldn't be out there alone. He should have someone to talk to someone to kind of guide the questions for him. So when they were coming to Houston, they had asked the head of SPA, would you know anyone who would go up on stage and interview? And SPA contacted me and asked me if I would like to do it. And I've worked with them on and off for years and a big supporter of what they do and what they bring to Houston. And I was like, absolutely. And so to make the story even longer than it needs to be the week before the show, I was in a bike accident and broke both of my hands. And so I was wow. laid up for the week before, but I was going to do that interview. But because of that, it gave me the time to just sit and watch his movies. And I probably watched 30 Al Pacino movies during that period of time. And, we did the interview. I think the broken hands helped when it changed the dynamic of who we were to each other. Had I not had the broken hands, he would have walked into the hall and I would have been like, Oh, Mr. Pacino, nice to meet. But because my hands were in these weird funny bracket braces, he walks in and the first thing he does was ask me about my hands. And so it changed the dynamic right away. And I think it put us on a footing where we could have a conversation So then that night we did the show, and about two weeks later I got a phone call from his publicist saying, Al really liked working with you. Would you be willing to do more of these in different areas, in different markets? And I was like, sure. Can you give me any guidelines to what it was he liked so I know to craft it that way? And they said, well, just do exactly what you did in Houston, and you guys will be dynamite. Well, the side note to the story is, I was on massive painkillers because of my broken hands, <laughs> and I had no idea what we did on stage. That first. <laughs> so every time we've done the show since, I always ask him after the show, "Was that like the first one?" And well, he doesn't know what I'm talking about anymore. He's like, oh, "Whatever," you know. So, but that's what started it, and we've been doing it for gotta be close to ten years. We've been doing this, so yeah.
0: How cool. Got a lot more with Ernie Manous on next week's episode of City Book & Company. Come back and see us. City Book & Company is a production of City Book Media and Milieu Media Group. This episode was produced, edited, and mixed by Luke Brauner. The music you've heard in this episode was licensed from Blue Dot Sessions. Artwork is designed by Patrick McGee. You'll find links to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter in the show notes. Visit HoustonCityBook.com for the latest news and notes on the most fascinating city in America.